We are continuing this morning with our study through Psalm 119. Last week we looked at the first stanza of this psalm. Today we'll be looking at the second stanza, which is verses 9 through 16. Each of the 22 stanzas in Psalm 119 is based on the letters of the Hebrew alphabet, uh, chronologically in order. The first stanza is based on the first letter, Aleph, and so each individual verse started with that verse. The second stanza is based on the second letter, which is Beit, and so each of the individual verses here start with that Hebrew letter. This psalm really is a, is a treasure. It's just a treasure in the fact that it helps us examine the Word of God from so many different angles. Uh, just, so, just multiple words and phrases and illustrations used to illustrate and to communicate different aspects of the Scriptures. It's also important to remember that the psalm reflects the challenge of walking with God as an exile in a hostile world. So that tells us that our commitment to the Lord must be characterized by a strong commitment to his word if we're going to be able to stand firm in a culture that is hostile to the Christian faith. Tragically, there are actually many professed Christians who are doing really the opposite of that. There are many who deny that all scripture is inspired by God, and when you do that, you open yourself up to much that is false and deceptive and just wrongheaded in general. Here's uh, on your outline, I've listed a title that Andrew Bonar suggested as a title for, the, for all of Psalm 119. He said this, A pilgrim and stranger guided day and night by the law of the Lord till he reaches the city. It's a great description here. It reminds us that as Christians, we are pilgrims and strangers in the world. The world as a whole is going a different direction than we are. Therefore, we need to be guided day and night by his law. And God, so God's word is vital to every aspect of our lives. So because of this theme that we see in Psalm 119, some have suggested that maybe Daniel wrote Psalm 119. Don't know whether he did or not, but he was very literally an exile who was forced to live in the idolatrous city of Babylon. As a believer... How was he to conduct himself? How was he to deal with the temptations, the pressures that he would find there, the unbelief that was all around him, the idolatry that was all around him? So whether he wrote Psalm 119 or not, the commitments that are expressed in this psalm fit very well with how Daniel conducted himself as a believer who was a pilgrim and a stranger living in a hard place. In verses 1 through 8, we saw that God promises blessing. And this is something of a kind of a standard theme for the, whole, for the whole psalm. That God promises blessing to all who seek him and seek his ways with all their heart. And just a wonderful promise to those who are living as pilgrims and strangers. That as we seek to honor the Lord by honoring his, his, his law, there is blessing in that. It's promised. Those verses also remind us that even as we are diligently seeking God's commandments, at the same time, we know that we are weak. We know that we're going to fail at times. We know that we're going to need his help. Let's look now at the second stanza, verses 9 to 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. 
Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. You can divide these verses into two sections. First, in verses 9 through 11, there is a desire for purity that's expressed and and pursued. And then secondly, in verses 12 to 16, we see many different godly responses that believers can make to the word of God that will help them as they're walking out that path of purity. So in our first section, first point, we see this. Though it's no easy task, believers are called to actively use his word as they pursue purity in this life. Stanza begins with a question and an answer in verse 9. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. This is probably one of the better known verses in Psalm 119, and for good reason. It causes us to focus on a key aspect of living the Christian life. How can we keep our way pure when the culture around us is pulling us the other direction? Even the sin that's within our own hearts is pulling us the other direction. How can we keep our way pure when we know that we have already failed to do that in multiple ways? Well, this is something that really every Christian, regardless of what our age might be, that we all have to deal with. But the psalmist specifically addresses the issue of how a young man can keep his way pure. So why does he do that? Well, one answer could be that he himself was a young man when he wrote this. This is another thing that makes Daniel as a possibility of the author. Let me read to you from from Daniel 1, 3, and 4. It says, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles, youths in whom was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, who had ability for serving in the king's court, and he ordered him to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans. So in this scenario, it would be perfectly logical to see Daniel and his friends looking at what's going on and saying, how can a young man keep his way pure in this kind of situation? Look at all that's around us. Look what they're forcing us to spend our time reading and studying and understanding. Look at the, and we're just, we're exiled prisoners. We really have no choice in the matter of these circumstances that we find ourselves in. So how can we keep our way pure? Another reason behind this question being worded in this way could be that there are special challenges when we're young. Genesis 5 verse 3 says, talks about the imagination of man's heart has been evil from his youth. 2 Timothy 2.20 issues this call, flee youthful lust. So there are special challenges connected with being young that the Bible recognizes and much of the world's, what the world is drawing is oftentimes directed especially to those who are young. One thing I think is very important to take note of here and to keep in mind really all the way through is that this very question reveals that God has given the psalmist a heart to want 
to be pure. His heart desires that. And that's something that only comes from God. So when God changes our hearts and inclines us toward holiness, toward purity, he will also provide the means by which we can do that. So the question is, in light of great challenges in life, how can we keep our way pure? Well, at our next point, we see the fundamental answer to this question. In the midst of great challenges to impurity, God has given believers his sufficient word as a necessary weapon to use in the battle. A necessary weapon used in the battle. So how does the young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. It's the word of God that is the necessary weapon, or at least you could call it a necessary tool, that we have to use in pursuing purity. I want to give you a personal example here of how the Lord really led me. I wasn't thinking necessarily about this particular passage, but it applies to this verse. But how the Lord led me when I was a young man, back in the black and white days, of dealing with the issue of purity. This was probably, if I trace it back, 1976, 1977. I heard a man at a Christian conference talk about the need for those who were single, which was me, to talk about the need for those who were single to write up from Scripture dating standards, dating guidelines that they would follow. He said, no matter what a person's age, to pursue a dating relationship was not really something that should be considered until you had done that, until you had considered from Scripture what guidelines you should follow, what things you should do, what things you should not do, things of that sort. I was convicted that that was something I should do. I've still got my copy. I should have dated it. It's at least 77 or 66, 76 or 77. And so I shared some of these with the Connect group in the past. So I'm going to read some of them for you. My dating guidelines. And I've got verses for all these. I'm not going to take time to read all the verses, but I want you to know that I've thought about scriptures for each of these. Number one, I will only date Christian girls who are actively seeking the Lord. 2 Corinthians 6.14 says, do not be unequally yoked. Number two, I will seek to be a servant to her in every way possible. Uh, Philippians 2 speaks of that. And I gave myself several examples. Be on time. Have a clean car. Be neat and clean in appearance. Open the doors for her. Walk her to the door. You'll like this one. Number three. I will not kiss her until I verbally make a commitment of myself to her in engagement. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 says, uh, man shall not touch a woman, and the idea there is touch in a sexual type way. Now, let me also add this. So, I rewrote these as a, as a youth minister later, um, and I changed that one, and here's how I changed it. Um, several scriptures put in here. Sex outside of marriage is obviously wrong. Therefore, I will not do anything as far as physical affection that would cause me to think about sexual intercourse. Number four, 
having agape love as my goal in the relationship and try to keep that ever in mind. And I use 1 Corinthians 13, those different 15 different uh, illustrations of love. And I said, I wrote down that I was going to consistently evaluate myself during the dating relationship to see if I was doing that. I changed that one a little bit too. And that is, we'll major on being friends, not being romantic lovers. You like these? <laughs> Next, the purpose of becoming one in spirit. And it's especially what I meant by that is make our Christian faith central, you know, to the relationship. Ministry projects together, prayer times together, share what God's doing in our lives. Number six, don't let the relationship interfere or distract while I'm in a group fellowship. Speaking, talking about a Christian fellowship or in a uh, time of ministry or time of worship. Don't let the, that relationship distract from that. Be careful not to defraud her by my words or by my actions. Defraud means that you're promising something that you have no intention of following through with. Have an openness in sharing my life with her. Be sensitive to her needs. Be a comfort if needed, rejoicing in victories and so forth. And then my last one, that I would have a vital relationship with the Lord, not trusting my judgment or understanding, but trusting his so committing the time to him in prayer before the date, get to know God better and find out what he wants, not just getting to know the girl better and deciding for myself. And then lastly, trust him that he will give me his best, which he did. So if you're interested, Matthew mentioned this. There's a green sheet back there that I kind of summarized some of these into five points with scriptures. If you're interested, they're back there. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to his word. Next point. To win the battle for purity, believers must diligently, prayerfully, and humbly seek the Lord for help and their proneness to wander from his commands. Notice that verses 9 to 12 are written in the form of a prayer to God. The psalmist was asking this question about this question of purity of the Lord and then conversing with him in prayer about this battle, this uh, uh, pursuit, pursuit of purity. And then after committing himself to keeping his way according to God's word, he follows this up with verse 10 by saying, With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Seeking Lord with all your heart basically means with all you are, with a genuine sincerity. I mean, you really are serious about these things. So the ultimate issue here is, first and foremost, is, is a person's relationship with God. And this is the kind of thing that a Christian is naturally inclined toward. In Christ, the Lord, in Christ, the Lord has changed our heart. He's brought us into his family. He's made us new creations. He's filled us with his spirit. So we want to do what is right. We want to seek the Lord with all our heart and praise God that he gives us those desires. But the psalmist is also very honest with the Lord in his prayer. He knows himself well enough that he knows he has a tendency to stray away from what the commandments of God require. And I can say my own standards, of course, that I just read to you from all those years back before I was married, I didn't do those perfectly. If you want to ask Robin, you could find out. I didn't do those perfectly, but they gave me a guide. 
I mean, they, they really gave guide rails that were so helpful. But at the same time, there's a, there, there is this recognition here, we don't always do it right. We don't. There are times that our hearts and our direction kind of wanders. How can that happen? Well, we can become careless about our faith. We can become half-hearted about pleasing the Lord. We can give just very little time to prayer. We cannot fully engage in times of worship. We cannot be consistent in meeting with our local church. So we pray, Lord, don't let me wander. Convict me of my sin so I can come to you for help before it gets too bad. This is an everyday kind of prayer. Matter of fact, Charles Bridges said about this. He says, our Christian walk is not maintained by yesterday's grace. So by humble and dependent prayer, we are coming to the Lord regularly for a fresh supply of strength. The psalmist continues his prayer for purity in verse 11. He says, your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. So from this, we say our next point, believers must recognize that the word of God is a valuable treasure to be used in the temptation to sin against God. One thing the psalmist is doing here is reminding us, reminding himself that every sin is committed directly against God himself. Yes, it hurts us. Yes, it hurts other people. Yes, there are consequences that can be very difficult to deal with. But first and foremost, every sin that we commit, we commit against the one true God, the holy, sovereign, merciful God, the God who provided everything necessary for our salvation. So it is God the Father, as you know, who sent God the Son as the Messiah to purchase the salvation that we need as sinners. Jesus Christ, God the Son, lived that holy, righteous life. God the Son suffered on the cross and he endured the wrath that was intended, that is intended for every sinner. He endured that as a substitute on our behalf. He was then resurrected to ensure that the salvation he purchased was fully accomplished for anyone who would believe. And it's, it's the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God then, who applies that salvation work to us. When we sin, this is the God we are sinning against. All of our sins are against him. David said it in Psalm 51, against you and against you only have I sinned. So the psalmist is also praising the Lord for his word. His words are different than other people's words. The word of God is a treasure, he says. I mean, the fact that um, the fact that the Bibles we have were fully inspired by God himself makes that the greatest of treasures. And it's this word that gives us what we need to pursue purity in life. Sometimes we take something that's valuable and put it aside because we want to keep it safe. We want to make sure it doesn't break, you know, whatever. We want to take care of it. The word of God is a treasure, but it's not the kind of treasure that you put aside. It's the kind of treasure that's so valuable that you have to use it constantly because it's so valuable to our life. And we use it, basically, to make sure that we don't lose it, that we don't forget what it says. Having some scripture memorized is a really good help here of using it as this treasure that you can always pull from. 
Uh, we can be reminded of promises that God has made to us that are especially appropriate for whatever situation we might be in. We can, be, we can have things that come to, my mind, come to mind that give us guidance on exactly what to say, what to do uh, in a particular situation. We can remember things that encourage our faith and that actually encourage us in those temptations that he will enable us to, uh, to flee and also to endure those temptations. So the word of God is a valuable treasure to be used in temptations to sin against God. Let's move now to the second half of this stanza. So in these verses in the second part, we see this, that as believers use the word of the Lord in their fight for purity, there are multiple God-honoring responses that aid in the battle. So verses 12 to 16. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Each of these verses really speak of a particular action that the psalmist took in response to his prayer for purity. And his actions really give us a helpful example of actions that we can take as we fight our own battle for purity. So first is this. Praise the Lord who is infinitely happy within himself and therefore delights in blessing his people by granting them insight into his word. So verse 12 is an expression of praise to the Lord who has given us his word, his statutes, his ordinances, his commandments. And he says, blessed are you, O Lord. Well, as we noted in verses 1 and 2, that word shows up there, and it can be translated as happy. And those verses in verses 1 and 2 tell us that the way to real happiness is walking in the law of the Lord and seeking him with all of our heart. But here, this verse is telling us that God is the one who is blessed. God is the one who is happy. He is infinitely happy. I mean, if you are absolutely perfect in holiness, righteousness, mercy, love, grace, wisdom, you are perfectly happy. Our God is a blessed God, and he's acknowledging this in prayer. And because our God is infinitely and perfectly happy, he delights in sharing that blessing with his people because that's what love does. It shares that blessing that he enjoys so much himself. So what blessing, we could say blessings here, is God delighted to give his people? There's multiple ways that we could answer that question. But in the context of this verse, it says this. The blessing is that he will teach us his statutes. Probably not what we would be expecting. So he will make it clear to us what the truths are that are revealed in the word. He will cause us to have some understanding of what they mean. He will show us how they apply in our lives. He will give us greater insight into who he is as the God of our salvation. He will enable us to know him, the perfectly happy God, more personally. And the more we know of our God and the more we know of his statutes, the more we enjoy his perfect blessedness. 
So one of the things we need to do is to regularly praise the Lord and ask him to bless us by teaching us his statutes. Next, share with others the truths the Lord reveals. Verse 13, with my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. So we've seen the word being treasured in the heart. We have seen the blessedness of being taught God's statutes by God himself. And now we see that these truths are to be shared with others. It's good to share the insights that the Lord has given you into the word. This can happen in just ordinary conversation. It could happen in a small group Bible study. Uh, Parents can share with their kids things that they are understanding, have understood. Children can share with their parents things that they are understanding and uh, coming coming to understand more clearly. It could be taking advantage of an opportunity to give a verbal witness for Jesus Christ. In the Bible, we see Andrew doing that, for example, with his brother Peter. When he had found the Messiah, he went to make sure he told Peter and brought Peter back to the Messiah as well. The woman at the well did the same thing. She, the, Jesus revealed all kinds of amazing things to her. She went back to her friends in Samaria and brought them back to share with them. There is no doubt in my mind that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shared with each other the truths of God's word that they knew, trying to figure out how do we handle this situation, to seek to encourage one another because they had nobody else to turn to. So I have no doubt that they shared among themselves, talked about what they should do in the hard places that they were in. Now, this not only speaks of sharing with others what the Lord has speak, it also what, what the Lord has shown us. It also is the idea of speaking, because he's talking about using our lips, speaking these truths to God in praise and worship. We do that when we sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. We do that when we read the scriptures together, like we've done this morning already. God is the one who made our lips, and he's honored when we use our words to honor him. Next, Rejoice. Rejoice in the way of God's testimonies, as this is true wealth. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. So the psalmist speaks of pleasure and enjoyment. He expresses his pleasure and enjoyment in the way of God's testimonies. So he has a great joy in God's testimonies. Now, we mentioned this last week. God's testimonies really speak of the whole declaration of God, including things like biblical doctrine, his commands, examples in the scripture, threatenings, promises. So the testimonies are pretty broad in what this idea includes. Sometimes we can think of doctrine as something kind of dry and boring, Um. And, I mean, if you're just taking it as a class and trying to get a good grade on the test that's going to come up later, that's a real temptation. Remember, that's one of the temptations you have to deal with when you're in seminary, is that this stuff doesn't become dry and boring because you are doing it for a grade and for a test. But you're not doing it for that. But there is truly joy in doctrine. Many of the hymns that we sing are expressing joy in the doctrines of the Christian faith. Let me give you several examples of things that we sang together 
this morning. We sang this. Your gracious hand provides for all who live and breathe. Your mercy runs to find the helpless and the weak. That's good doctrine. And we sang that together this morning. You are the one who spoke and worlds became. You are our maker. You're our sustainer. Jesus, you alone are king of kings, the Christ of God, our savior. That's amazing stuff. That's great doctrine, and we rejoiced in that doctrine as we sang those words this morning. We sang, what is our hope in life and death? Christ alone. What truth can calm the troubled soul? God is good. Great doctrine. We rejoiced in those doctrines this morning, those testimonies of God, as we sang them to the Lord. By the way, it's interesting to note here that the psalmist actually says he rejoiced in the way of God's testimonies. That could be speaking of the fact that he's rejoicing in, the, in how the, those, his testimonies, the effect that they had had on his life. He's grateful for the truth that the Lord has revealed to him and applied, made application in his life. And to further illustrate the extent of his rejoicing, he compares it to riches and wealth. We all have material possessions that are very important to us, valuable to us. They are things that God has given us uh, to, 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 to provide for us, to, to grant us enjoyment. But there is no possession that is more valuable than the word of God. And not just the actual book. I don't mean just make sure nobody messes with your book. I mean, I'm talking about the stuff in the book. I mean, the doctrines that are taught, the clear instructions and the commandments that are there, the promises that are made in this book are just remarkable. The salvation that's provided for us in Christ and is proclaimed clearly in this word all the way through, so encouraging. These are real treasures that we know these things, not because we're so smart, but because the Lord has been gracious to reveal them to us and grant us understanding of his word. Again, because he's a happy God. And he loves to share these kind of things with us to make us happy, to make us blessed. All that's more material than any material possession, is more valuable than any material possession you have. And I'm not saying material possessions are bad at all. Like I said, they're gifts from God. But this is a better one. This is a greater one. Rejoicing in God's testimonies then leads us to this next response. Meditate. Meditate carefully on God's precepts as this, and this this is a quote from Charles Bridges, this converts the word into real and proper nourishment. So verse 15 says, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. So many of these things, they just kind of fit on top of each other. I mean, anything that you greatly enjoy, that you take great pleasure in, You think about it, and you probably think about it a lot. You may get books about it, pictures. There's all kinds of things that we do to show that we really like this thing, maybe this person, this whatever it might be, whatever we are are truly treasuring and delighting in, we think about it. We give time to it. That's what we do. The same is true of the scriptures. As Christians, we have a desire to know the Word of God. 
the blessed God teaches us his statutes, like I said, as a way of blessing us. And in various ways, we speak then of what the Lord has taught us. He gives us joy in spending time in his word. So it makes sense that we want to think deeply on his word. That's really what meditation is. It's ruminating. It's thinking. It's pondering. It's giving attention to the scriptures. It often includes memorizing, and that's memorizing verses is a good thing. But meditation goes deeper than memorization. It actually helps you get into the meat, the details of what that verse is actually saying. So the purpose of memorizing would especially be to help us treasure that word in our heart. And then we bring out that treasure and think on it in various situations. In meditation, you read the word slowly. You ask questions of the text. Why did he use that word and not that word? How does this verse fit with the verse that came before it? How does it fit with the verses that come after? Why did he put it in this order? Is there another way you could say this? How could I redefine this to help me understand exactly what he's saying about he says this word? You're ruminating. That's what you're doing when you meditate on scriptures. You're thinking about it. Use the verse to pray for yourself. Use the verse to pray for others. Meditation is a very important aspect of the Christian life. And like all the rest of this stanza, it helps us greatly in maintaining and walking the path of purity. I like the way Charles Bridges speaks of meditation as converting the word into real and proper nourishment. I mean, the truths, the truths that God reveals to us in his word, they feed our souls. Yes, they are practical in our lives. But in a, more, in a deeper way, they actually feed who we are. They feed our souls. They encourage us. They help us in the way we live. Joshua 1.8 says that we are to meditate on the book of the law day and night so that we might be careful to do what is written in it. So it's not just the thinking. It's not just the getting more information as you work through this in your mind. But it's actually thinking, okay, what does this mean in the way I talk and the way I act and my priorities and so forth? What does it mean in the, in the way I live my life? That brings us to the last verse, verse 16. We see here that meditation on the word of God leads directly to delight in his word. Interesting, really, how this idea runs through this whole stanza. The theme, how can a young man keep his way pure? Part of the answer that shows up multiple, multiple times in a little bit different way, part of the answer is make sure treasure the word of God in your heart. A treasure is something you treat as valuable, important. I think you could even say enjoyable in many cases, something really precious to you. Verse 12, since God is supremely happy within himself, he communicates that perfect happiness, that joy by teaching us his statutes. So there's joy in that. Verse 14, we're exhorted to rejoice in the way of his testimonies as much as in all riches. And now we say, I will delight in your statutes. Who would have thought that joy and delight are such a prominent theme in the answer to how do you keep your way pure. Make sure your joy and delight is in the right place. We replace a delight in things that are sinful 
with delights, a superior delight in what is good, right, and godly. The commandments, the ordinances, the testimonies, the statutes of God. Look at what Charles Spurgeon said about this. He says, the statute book, the statute book is intended to be the joy of every loyal subject. <laughs> Most of us don't think about joy in statutes. The statute book is intended to be the joy of every loyal subject. Is that how we think of God's laws? Yes, they are just. They are righteous. But they also speak are to be the joy of every child of God. And Adam Clark talks about this word for delight. And here's what he said. He said, the word is very emphatical. I will skip about and jump for joy. So the word of God, every aspect of the word is more full and more advantageous to us than we realize. We can all profit from greater delight in his word. As we saw in verse 15, I believe meditation on the scripture is a key to this. Then the psalmist says here, I shall not forget your word. I'm sure this is something that we all have to deal with. I had a friend who... Uh, used to pray, he said, he said, one of my prayers I pray all the time is, Lord, help me not to forget the things I've already learned. But every one of us have all kinds of things that we've learned that we've forgotten. We all do. That's just reality. That's the frailness of our human minds. But honestly, this isn't necessarily saying, make sure that you file away every single truth that you've ever learned. It's the idea of remember in the sense of, using it. Don't forget to use the word. Don't forget to apply the word in your particular situation, your particular temptation, whatever it might be. Because forgetfulness, this kind of forgetfulness, is an opening the door to sin. Because you're forgetting to apply the scriptures in your temptations. It's also true, though, the things that we delight in we don't usually forget those things. Things we delight in, we remember. We remember them. They're important to us. Whether that's people, whether that's experiences, whether that's activities that you really enjoy that bring you great pleasure, we remember those things because they bring us joy. The more joy we have in the Word of God, the more likely we can say, I shall not forget your word. But I think we should also accompany that with another prayer that he prayed. Do not let me wander. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Lord, I do want to thank you for your word. I thank you for the example with the testimony, basically, that we have here of a young man who has a real heart to want to live and honor you with his life, even though there are difficulties, there are pressures, there are temptations all around, just like there are for all of us. But I thank you for the desire that is there. Lord, I thank you for the desire you've placed in all of us as Christians. It's mixed with all kinds of other things that are there, but if we're Christians, you've given us a heart to want to know you, a heart to want to know your word and live in ways that are pleasing to you with our life. Lord, help us to be concerned about how to keep our way pure. Help us to be concerned that we are actually keeping our way according to your word 
and trusting you to help us all the way through. We constantly are in need of your help. Lord, one thing I pray for is that you would grant us a greater delight and joy. I can, however much delight you have, however much delight I have now, it can be increased. Lord, help it to be increased in us as we meditate on your word. And Lord, use it in powerful ways in our life to keep our ways pure and such that we honor you. If you're one who doesn't have that kind of relationship with the Lord, who's really never put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, I would invite you to do that. I would invite you to put your faith, to confess your sin, admit your sin, admit that you don't really have a desire like this young man had, but you, want, but you know you need it. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I don't want to honor you like I really should want. So I know that's not a good sign. But I know that Jesus Christ came into the world for sinners <coughs> like me. <coughs> and I want to receive Jesus Christ as my Savior. I want to commit my life to him as the Lord of my life. If you want to talk more about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off. Those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website.